Welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm Annie Galvin, an editor and producer at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that is free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. And I'm Natalie Kirby, Digital Content Associate at Data and Society. Data and Society is a research institute that studies the social implications of data-centric technologies and automation. You can learn about our work at datasociety.net. This is the third season of our podcast, so if you're listening for the first time, I invite you to subscribe to Public Books 101 in your podcast feed and listen back to season one, which was about the internet, and season two, which was about the novel in the 21st century. This season, we're excited to partner with Data and Society to explore the past, present, and future of human life being quantified as data. Natalie will be your host this season, so I'll let her take it from here. And thanks for listening. In this season, Becoming Data, my guests and I are considering a few main guiding questions. How long has human life been quantified as data, and in what contexts? What are some major implications of humans being quantified or measured as data? How are people pushing back against the datification of human life, work, health, and citizenship, among other things? If you have thoughts about this episode, you can tweet at us at Data Society or at Public Books. You can follow both organizations on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about the work that we do. Today, my guests are Laura Furlano and Ranjit Singh. We'll be talking about the different infrastructures that data interacts with and flows through. Both Laura and Ranji see infrastructure as relational. In our conversation, we ask, how are these data infrastructures complicating what it means to be human? All right, let's dive into my conversation with Laura and Ranji. Thank you, Laura and Ranji, so much for chatting with us today about data and infrastructure. I think it would be great if you could both just introduce yourselves. Ranjit, do you want to start? I am Ranjit Singh. I am a postdoctoral scholar at Data and Society Research Institute. Before joining Data and Society, I was a PhD candidate at the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Cornell. My topic of research was India's biometric-based national identification infrastructure. It's called Aadhaar. I focused on how using this identity verification system and a digital ID is fundamentally transforming the way in which Indians experience their citizenship rights. My name is Laura Forlano. I'm an associate professor at the Institute of Design at IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. I'm a social scientist by training and a design researcher as well. So that means that over the last 10 or so years, I've looked at a variety of digital infrastructures, everything from community uh, wireless networks, um, groups of people that were building their own broadband infrastructure, as well as the ways that those networks were being used, to more recently looking at networked medical devices, and in particular, my own experiences using those, and engaging both in a traditional social science critique mode of looking at 
sort of, you know, how are the rituals and cultures around these technologies being used, how to think about them, but also from a more inventive perspective, working on more speculative and participatory engagements with technology. I want to just ground us with a pretty simple question that we're asking everyone in this series, and that is, what is data? I like to think about data in tandem with the cultures and practices around it. It's not only important to think about data as as sort of the, the information that might be transmitted between patients and doctors, for example, but also the rituals and practices around that. So Ranji, how about for you? What is data? I think I'll uh, pick on the last thing that Laura put, put forward, that it's a combination of technical as well as social practices. I kind of look at it more from the perspective of how state-citizen relationships are managed. So in that sense, I find data to be a product of a translation. What I mean is that it represents something real and something happening in the real world, but it must fundamentally manifest in zeros and ones to be in an abstract machine-readable format. I really like that you highlight that it's not just one, one direction, it's this loop where we're abstracting, but then it comes back to real world consequences. My next question, it's kind of a more fun one. What's one way that you really see yourself interacting with data in your everyday life? And I bet, I mean, Laura, I'll have you go first. I know that part of this conversation will talk about your use of an automated insulin pump. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the questions that arises for me is, the labor involved in maintaining data systems. And that is a part of this relational understanding of data technology systems and social practices. For for me, I often say this AI system is keeping me alive, but it's also ruining my life. And the reason for that is that with the, a particular smart insulin pump system that's been out for the last several years in the United States, one of the problems that people are having is the constant interruption of their day-to-day activities due to the alerts and alarms on the device. The alerts and alarms are there in the most urgent life-preserving sense to make sure that the type 1 diabetic doesn't have a severe low blood sugar incident. And so after several years of using this and being awoken in the night, very frequently, sometimes multiple times a night, I actually started to believe that I was in some sense sleeping like a sensor, developing new patterns of sleep that were biologically somehow I knew, oh, I'm going to get woken up again, so I better wake up. Basically, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, of course, but I think the point here is that there are lots of alerts and alarms on the device. Some of them are medically essential. Some of them are legally necessary, but then there are also the the technical functioning of the device and the, the range of explanations that are given for, you know, why some people seem to experience many more difficulties and others don't. I mean, actually on a number of Facebook communities where people share stories about what seems to be working for them. But one thing is very clear is that my own experience of data in my life, helping them to do their job requires a lot of labor, a lot of participation on my part. I've begun to use this term called the disabled cyborg to acknowledge not only my own participation and and my own body being 
part of this technical system, but also the technical system itself having a disability and not functioning the way that it might be expected either by the company or by myself. It's a really complex issue. I don't think anyone actually knows the answer to exactly why some people are having better experiences than others, but it's very clear that there are really widespread difficulties, problems, and failures that are occurring as a result of being in the first several years of using these particular algorithmic systems. Yeah, I think you've given us a lot to unpack there. I'm excited to dive into that. But first, Ranji, what ways do you find yourself interacting with data in your everyday life? It's a great question because as soon as I think about it, I'm thinking about when am I not interacting with data? In a way, part of our lives are just designed around the idea that we are constantly in interaction with data all the time. When we use their smartphone, when we are looking at television, when we buy stuff on Amazon, when we interact with the government. So uh, whenever any application is promising personalization of any kind, and this personalization kind of goes both ways, as Laura kind of pointed out when she talked about sleeping like a sensor, Because it's simultaneously, we are being personalized to the devices that we are using in a way. So we are sharing our data with these applications and it is figuring out what we like or dislike based on how we respond to its cues. Simultaneously, we are responding to what it likes and dislikes depending upon how we are living our lives, uh, especially in the context of healthcare devices. So when we are on social media, uh, it's 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 a part of the combination of things that we continuously are a part of and it's a, it's a part of our everyday life and we need to accept it in a way where this is not something that is outside of us. As Laura mentioned, it's a part of becoming this cyborg entity which has desperately effective in a way. You know, it's different for different people and how it works. So in, in a way, we are constantly producing data about ourselves based on what we listen to, what we search for. And now it's even what we wear, right? Uh, like the smartphone, uh, a smartwatch that I have in my hand. Um, so personally, I like tracking fitness uh, through my watch quite a bit. I spend a lot of time obsessing over active calories that I've burned and the number of steps that I've taken. Uh, and I find it useful in gamifying some aspects of my life in a way, right? My fitness goals and being adjusting to how I'm feeling and the amount of time that I've spent in front of a computer screen. But at the same time, it's also a way of just organizing life. And it's kind of become that over time. Yeah, I like that you flipped my question on its head in a way where it's not, how are you interacting with data? But (laughs) how are you not interacting with data? And Laura, your responses also reminded me, it mirrored a lot of what the conversation focused on in our labor and data episode, where it's not only laborers being traditional workers, like farm workers is who we were talking about, having their work tracked and surveilled, but also the idea of how we labor to make ourselves visible to a technology or to work with the technology. And I think that's the type of labor that intertwines with data that we often forget about. So I want to bring us back to this idea of infrastructure, because that's where we're focusing this episode. And I think when a lot of people hear the word infrastructure, they might think about roads and bridges. And and for some, maybe they even think about the internet. And I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about what we're talking about when we say infrastructure. Ranji, why don't you start? I think there is a way in which we think about 
what we intuitively understand as infrastructure. And it's always kind of a thing, as you pointed out. It's roads, it's internet. It's a way of pointing to things which are around us and at the same time are a part of how we live our everyday lives. So canonical literature and infrastructure studies talk about this in terms of infrastructures are the invisible background of our everyday lives. It is something that is just there. And it changes its meaning for different people based on how they experience it. So one of the examples that Susan Lee Starr and Karen Ruleda use is that a cook considers the water system a piece of working infrastructure integral to making dinner. But for a city planner, it becomes a variable in a complex equation. So instead of thinking about what an infrastructure is or thinking about it in terms of it being a noun, they invite us to actually think about when is an infrastructure, which not only brings in a question of time and thinking about what is the moment at which we are thinking about something as the infrastructure of our lives, but also it invites us to think about infrastructure as a verb. And I do that in my work in thinking about how data shapes state-citizen relationships and how state-citizen relationships then mutually shapes the data that is produced in the process. So I follow how a state recognizes and delivers services to its citizens through their data. And in this sense, I focus on the process of infrastructuring state-managed data systems into the everyday lives of citizens. So you can see this by simply looking at the different identity verification systems that different countries develop over time to verify that a citizen is who they say they are. These identity verification systems range from paper-based documents to the new biometric-based ID systems. Citizen identification, in the sense, the process constantly evolving through time, and it is embedded in particular histories of nation building. Any new ID system doesn't exist independent of these existing systems. They are woven into the fabric of how state bureaucracies operate. So it is not simply a question of using a new technology. So facial recognition to identify citizens, for example. For a state to use any technology, it needs to build an infrastructure, a whole set of processes, which requires a policy framework of these technologies. It requires new administrative procedures to make it an everyday part of the work that bureaucracies do. And it finally has to consider legally the consequences of what the adoption means and how it impinges upon constitutional rights of citizens. So in a way, if you start thinking about infrastructure as a verb, it's, it becomes an organizational principle which allows us to then start looking at the relationship between things and people as it is being put together by a technical system which simultaneously needs so many other kinds of work, which can be legal, which can be administrative, which can be partly based on just the experience of living with these technologies, which then becomes a part of thinking through what an infrastructure actually is doing and as well as how it's basically being put together. So in that sense, I use this lens to then start tracing the kinds of challenges that India's system has faced since its inception and the ways in which it was brought together through all of these interventions being put together at different points of time in the last 10 years. So what I'm hearing from you is an infrastructure is kind of a set of processes, an organizing principle. It's something that is kind of almost invisible to the naked eye in this context, but it's it's connecting disparate parts. And I really like that you brought up that it's when is something an infrastructure, because I think that really emphasizes that it depends on who's looking at this system and how we're using it when it fills that role of infrastructure. So Laura, I'd be really curious to hear from you because I know that your work, as you already mentioned, has ranged from thinking about community Wi-Fi networks all the way to 
as we've talked about, again, your automated insulin pump. So what is infrastructure for you? And I'd be particularly curious to hear about it in the framework of this medical device that you're using. Do you consider that an infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. And I've, you know, I talk about the idea of intimate infrastructures. So they're deeply embedded into the body, but they also in certain instances of various devices I've used over the last seven years or so, some of them allow you to share data with friends and family so that they can check that you're, you know, having a good day, so to speak. And so I think about the infrastructure of care that goes around maybe linking you with a spouse and so that you can be connected, your details about what's going on in your blood sugar can be connected with that person who's looking out for you. And so I think of it that way, it's maintaining both kind of a medical need, but also a social relationship and many other things. That's how I've applied it sort of in the critical disability studies perspective is that, yeah, these are definitely infrastructures. The one thing you'll definitely find if you do a study of this kind is that everything relies on everything else. And so this idea of multiple interlinked overlapping networks, for example, you need a lot of supplies to make all these devices work, a lot of plastic parts. So, you know, you not only have the devices themselves, which include a meter, continuous glucose monitor and an insulin pump. Those are the, the three primary forms of technology. But you also need devices to insert those things into your body. So there are different kinds of inserters. There are batteries. There are tubes. And all of those things, depending on which company's devices you're relying on, that means that you're plugged into different sort of networks of reordering supplies and how frequently can you get them. Interestingly enough, when I was transitioning from the previous pump, which was not a smart insulin pump, to the current one, there was a period at which there was a backlog of orders. This was in late 2019. And due to the hurricane in Puerto Rico, it had actually disrupted the supply chain. So there was a delay and a lag. And I had never really thought about how climate change might be linked to supply chains, might be linked to my ability to get the parts that I needed to get all of these things to function. And so I think that was a great example. You definitely quickly start following a lot of different threads and and sort of themes of, of different things that rely on each other. And if any one of them isn't working, so for example, if the meter is not working and you can't test your blood sugar or you've run out of the little lancets that you use to get the blood out of your finger, like then the rest of the system just won't really work. And so that's what's fascinating. But I like to think both about that intimate infrastructure, such as that example, but then also to kind of, in a multi-scalar way, think about things like, for example, the Chicago red light camera system, which I've written a little bit about in one of my public books essays, but also the Boeing Air Max failures. And if you look at those cases, what you're going to see is that There are social and political aspects of why those succeed or fail. And that includes everything from, for example, in the Chicago red light cameras, it was the fact that people were actually afraid to drive through 
the intersections where they had red light cameras um, because they were so worried about getting a ticket that they would often then back up into the car behind them and cause more accidents. And the technology was, of course, focused on trying to prevent accidents and those kinds of things. So they were trying to make a more safe driving environment and they made it less safe. With Boeing Air Max, I think that there are lots of different aspects that related to the fact that, you know, many of the employees had interesting relationships with their government regulators. And so, I mean, it's just that when you start following these kinds of lines of questioning around this being an infrastructure and not just a tool that is based on social and cultural practices and politics, economics and climate change, as I mentioned, then it starts opening up what those dependencies and relationships are. And things become a lot more interesting, I think, for the from the perspective of research. There are lots of different things that one could study to tell the story of these different infrastructures. Yeah, I think that example you gave between linking your own medical device to climate change is the perfect, it was it was just a beautiful example to see how all these systems are interconnected and encompass an infrastructure in and of themselves. You also at one point, I forget exactly what the line was, but you use the word maintaining, which reminds me of maintenance. And I feel like that's something that's come up in some of my conversations recently is the maintenance of these systems as well and how that often totally gets disregarded. One of the things that came to my mind as you were describing the case study of using these medical devices was to connect it back to one of the ideas that you mentioned initially, which was focused on disabled cyborgs. And there is a particular story here which is focused on how do disabled cyborgs as an entity as an, and as a particular kind of people experience infrastructures. So I wonder if there is there is a way in which we can think about how we experience infrastructures in the face of them breaking down as a relationship or in relationship with the idea or the notion of disabled cyborgs and whether that might be something that might be useful to consider in terms of bringing some of these different ideas together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think one of the limitations of sort of taking a critical or social science approach is that we do tend to overemphasize like the way things break down or go wrong, especially in the science and technology studies tradition. And, and while that's essential research and, and super interesting, it doesn't always help us then reorient to what might alternative relations look like. So not, not just alternative technologies, but alternative attitudes we might have or alternative metaphors or alternative imaginaries. And so, you know, I think in my piece for public books, I wrote that we might aim to have more generous relations between humans and things. And in particular, these kinds of medical systems, which are very clearly um, designed around what we might think of kind of behavioral and cognitive and persuasive design traditions. And we might think about instead of focusing on, you know, nudging the user to make adjustments to their blood sugar or calibrate their sensor at various times of day, we might think, well, what would a generous relationship of living together or living with these systems look like? And I, you know, I don't necessarily have an answer, but I do think that that is possible if we think in a more speculative and inventive way about the topic, rather than only coming at it from a critical perspective. I, I agree. I think this notion of generosity is pretty useful in thinking about relationships with data. You know, how can we be generous with these systems, which are just trying to basically interject in our lives one way or the other, but at the same time, they're trying their best, right? One way or the other. <laughs> so how we develop those relationships and how we talk about generosity in our scholarship is an important part of this 
conversation. I think you're both really leading us very nicely into the next section here. I really want to talk about how humans and infrastructure interact, which I think is kind of exactly where where you just brought us. So uh, Laura, I know in your work, you are really talking about whether it's your own body or anyone else's having this relationship with technology where you're kind of influencing each other. It's going back and forth. And so I'm, I'm curious if you think what it means to be human is changing as we become more and more embedded in these systems. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that's the key to a relational understanding of infrastructure that takes the kind of socio-technical as a concept. That also means that what it is in the category of the human or what it is in the category of technology itself becomes more unstable. There are lots of good debates, especially from critical race studies and critical disability studies about, well, why would we pivot to these other notions of the human when we've been fighting so hard to get rights within the category of the human as is. But there's also great scholarship that really says, you know, these boundaries are already troubled. They were never discreet in the ways that, say, Western science, enlightenment thinking likes to isolate these things. Whose values and orientations are driving the way the algorithms work? I mentioned this idea of like persuasive design, which happens to be extremely popular within design schools and, and I think engineering programs as well. This idea that we can have this influence on users and we've seen how that plays out with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and elections and who has agency. Are we infinitely kind of manipulable as humans or are there ways of, of resisting or pushing back against that? And I do worry very much that in particular disabled people, um, not only in my own example, but in many others, are themselves test beds for these kinds of technologies that might then be rolled out in, say, discussions around, you know, how to track warehouse workers. There's a lot of research going on about tracking emotion to know when an employee is going to have a certain kind of emotional reaction. And so I think that that's where I find it very troubling that that we aren't having a broad conversation about the ways that infrastructures are social and cultural and political. And instead, you know, the majority of thinking does seem to have embraced this very persuasive design or behavioral kind of understanding by nudging people through algorithmic agencies that are deployed uh, in everything from social media systems to a range of other infrastructures. Yeah, that's super interesting. And so Ranjit, my question to you is, how do human values come up in your work on citizenship and digital ID? And how do you see the idea of what constitutes a citizen challenge the integration of a digital ID system? It's kind of a broad question. So what I'm going to do is to basically divide it up into two halves. One is the state's conception of how to think about citizens and why to a certain extent the investment in digital IDs was first rationalized and you know accounted for in a way. And the core there seems to be two streams of thought. One is the concern around national security. So one of the ways in which digital identities are usually appropriated across the world is centered on the notion of national security. We need to be able to differentiate between who is a citizen and who is not a citizen. And the way in which we do that is by basically assigning different kinds of digital IDs to different kinds of people. The other aspect, and India kind of began with it, but at the same time kind of dropped that as a reason 
to actually implement the biometric based system and then went into the other way of thinking about the same problem which is centered on social security so the notion there is situated in the idea that there are certain parts of the population that need more support and welfare than other parts of the population so there is a definite need for targeting certain uh, populations for welfare services and in order to be able to target them we need to basically be able to uniquely identify them because unique identification then is deeply connected with conversations on fraud and forgery in id documents which then is used as an excuse or as a validation of the idea that this is the reason why the welfare that is intended for the poor never reaches them because you know there's a lot of corruption in the process so if we can uniquely identify beneficiaries then we can figure out actual offtake of benefits and that will allow us to basically curb corruption in the process so one of the examples that is generally used in this case is the public distribution system of india which is designed around providing subsidized food grains to below party line families in the country and the general metric that is basically talked about is partly a number which doesn't really have quite a solid grounding but at the same time it's always used as the idea that only 25% of the benefits that were actually diverted from the government to the scheme actually reach the poor and how that 25% comes about you know has different sources and you can keep tracking it back as to who said it the first time what i mean by this is that there is a trope of corruption that is generally also used as a way of then rationalizing why we need to invest in digital ids as a way of then being able to make uh, accountable governance where everything is transparent everything is accessible and you know we can have clear accounts of where the money went and what happened with it and it all comes out of digital ids in a way so that's kind of the general rationalization of it this produces its own set of challenges from the perspective of citizen if a technology impinges upon my constitutional rights as a citizen then i have a right to challenge it right so one way in which digital ids usually impinge upon people's rights is usually imagined around the idea of privacy and surveillance so it's a way of impinging upon somebody's life taking their intimate details in order to basically then figure out a number and assign it to them now in this case you know aadhar's design is done in a way where after all the legal battles that were fought in the case the court basically said that for any government scheme to actually impinge upon a citizen's right to privacy it must satisfy a three prong test one was it should be passed as an act by the government the second was it should have a legitimate purpose so no right is absolute so if i want to basically provide you welfare which is also a legal right of citizens in india then i can impinge upon privacy to some extent in order to streamline the services of welfare services right in that sense so there is this constant give and take and a balance and a trade off that is currently being imagined in the construction of digital ids themselves what it does challenge to a certain extent is how this representation that is being secured through data can be hard for a lot of citizens which then creates conditions of data driven precarity and marginalization which was not the case earlier it was just you know paper based documents were easier for people to manage as opposed to digital ids it requires some amount of literacy and the idea of navigating these systems and their interfaces in itself is a challenge so there are a lot of these different issues that come up in basically living with these systems and that's what i talk about in terms of thinking about what are the implications of these systems and then how they're experienced and how that relationality to a certain extent gets complicated and becomes challenging for a lot of citizens one of the things that stood out to me in one of your papers was how 
a lot of unhoused individuals were having trouble working with the system because it required needing an address and they didn't always have a stable address. Or older individuals who had cataracts weren't able to take the biometrics. So I think already in and of itself, it's like the state is saying in order to be a citizen, you need to have an address. And and you need to have a normal middle class body, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, a healthy body. There was a great project, I think, about 15 or more years ago by the Coalition for the Homeless in New York City about creating phone numbers for unhoused individuals so that they could actually get job interviews and be called back. So it was kind of a, you know, a tech intervention into that. But it was it, it was very interesting. And just looking at how does someone how do you create the infrastructure, I think, in in the idea of that Ranjit mentioned, like this idea of infrastructuring. So how do you do an intervention that creates the infrastructure that might not be there? So Laura, as we've kind of already talked about, there's this new status quo almost where algorithms and humans are shaping each other. And within that, you talk about algorithms or more than human entities having agency. So I'm curious how you first started that inquiry into expanding agency to not just human? And then what does it mean to assign agency to to the more than human? Uh, sure. I mean, so I think the idea of non-humans having agency is fairly widespread in the science and technology studies field. So we talk about the way things might have agency. So algorithms having agency might just be the latest version of that. And I think what's important also to note is that in the ideas th that we work with in science and technology studies, it's not that all things must have agency in all situations. It's more that we need to look for the possibility of agency that things might have. So rather than ignoring it or not counting it in our data set, we are open to the idea that that might be one aspect. And so for me, some of the early studies that I was doing on Wi-Fi infrastructure, I think an interesting way to think about agency in that case was that as people probably have the widespread experience of, you know, using your cell phone or using your laptop when you're not close enough to the cell tower or the Wi-Fi router, these networks or infrastructures have the ability to intervene in, in the social world by sort of saying, hey, you need to stand a little closer to the window if you want to have a phone call or use your laptop, for example. So that was a kind of agency. What's, what's interesting if we start thinking about algorithmic agency is that... Yes, in these moments where, you know, for example, the sensor needs to calibrate and wakes me up in the middle of the night, we might say that that is a form of algorithmic agency, that, that it's, it's jolting me from a dead sleep. And so it has an influence on my experience of the world. And so it's not only my situated action or my context that's important, but also that the algorithm is dynamically acting in the moment based on real-time data that it's getting from my body that creates this kind of unexpected, perhaps, action. And while these things are still based, of course, on software that are programmed because it's using dynamic data, the intersection between situated algorithmic actions and situated human actions becomes an entirely different thing, I would argue. So, Ranji, I wanted to talk to you also about this idea of agency and consent. So this digital ID system is mandatory for, for all citizens in India. So at what point does someone stop being a user of a technology? At what point does it just 
become a way of life? And how does that deal with notions of consent? Like, are you really consenting to this technology if it's required? I think the first time I encountered this question was when just randomly at a conference, I was having a conversation with one of the authors of this book called How Users Matter, uh, Nellie Outshun. And she was at that point of time working on pacemakers. And one of the things that she was interested in thinking about was if a pacemaker is inside your heart, inside you, are you really using it? If you ha- you literally have no control over this device, it's just, you know, ensures that your survival, but at the same time, you're not really using it in a way. So, you know, taking a step back from that particular example, I think there is an argument to be made where if infrastructures are invisible backgrounds of our lives, then we are not really using these infrastructures, we are living with them. And if we are living with them, then the notions of agency and consent, which we think about in terms of can we exercise control over something else? And that's how we usually model our notions of, okay, then we have agency to some extent because we have a say in something that is happening to us or we are consenting to this thing happening to us in a way, right? So I am consenting to sharing data with Facebook in order to be using Facebook service. In the digital ID case, what is interesting is that when it was started, it was designed around the idea of voluntary enrollment. So you really didn't need the ID. But the government was simultaneously arguing that in order to basically prevent fraud from welfare schemes, the number should be mandatory to access welfare services. So technically, you could choose to not sign up for the biometric number But what you would give up is access to welfare, right? And that is not a choice that a lot of people can simply make. For many below party line families, this is a part of their everyday sustenance. You can't really make certain choices. If you think about it, there is also this question of can we change and shape how we are represented through data? And that to a certain extent has been another part of this conversation where there is one part of the critical data study scholarship, which is focused on the notion of data subjects, being subject to your own data in a variety of different ways. In that particular context, there is simultaneously a need for a conversation which is kind of centered on what agency and consent do I exercise in order to basically shape how I get represented two systems. And in that particular sense, I focus a lot on thinking about how do people actively work on changing their representation to data systems. And a great example of this would be the ways in which people work towards improving their credit score in America. There are a lot of ways in which you can basically start working towards improving your score. And that, to a certain extent, is an everyday experience. It's it's a part and parcel of planning for your financial future and to secure it in a way. So that also means that these systems do not just produce results out of nowhere. They are simultaneously responding to your behavior one way or the other and how you are trying to shape these systems. So there's this dance of agency in a way, which kind of puts it together in a way where these systems are not only just shaping how we live our lives, but we are simultaneously trying to shape what these systems say about us. And that relationship and how we kind of unpack it is very dependent on the context of use. But at the same time, they're a part of just living with these systems now. 
And as soon as we recognize that these, these systems are here to stay, we can then start focusing on everyday forms of weapons of the week, more or less, where we can start thinking about how such everyday actions can then change how you're represented on a data system or what you can do with the device so that it works better for you. And you learn with it, you know, you learn to live with it in a way. And that's what a lot of people are doing in India. They're learning to live with their digital IDs. Yeah, I think through kind of both of your answers and throughout this conversation, I think this is back and forth nature between data infrastructures and people has become very clear. I think it's also been very emphasized in our conversation that it's all very contextually based, which I think is important to highlight. And I think, Ranji, that even goes to part of what you were saying for some people in their particular context, they might be able to exert agency, but for another because of their own status or identity, it's no longer agency. It becomes kind of required and and they can't, it's not really in consent. It's, I have to do this in order to survive. So I think part of what you both have also gotten to a little bit is acts of resistance and ways to push back against these data infrastructures and data-centric systems. And so for my final question, I really want to look to the future and ask both what types of trade-offs do we need to consider in moving forward, but also I would love it if there's particular moments of resistance that you would like to highlight and say, this is, this is a great way of people doing it. So yeah, why don't you start, Laura? Sure. I mean, I mean, I think one of the things that we haven't quite mentioned, but it's definitely part of, of looking to the future is the ways in which a lot of these systems are, of course, embedded in specific companies' plans to upgrade and update the various systems. And so whether it's the biometric systems or medical devices or technologies that we use every day, social media or laptops, there's sort of that inherent determinism, this idea that tomorrow will be better and the next version of the software or the next technology will be better. And of course, that is a huge moneymaker for technology companies to get us thinking about the next thing. In the research I did on the Driverless City project, one of the interesting examples was the ways in which Ford Motor Company advertised that their car could now drive at night autonomously, so to speak, while advertising the current model of the car, which clearly could not drive at night. And so this idea of how you get locked into a particular brand or device or company and, you know, with with something like a medical device, there are, you know, four year warranties in some cases. So once you get that device and they're extremely expensive, of course, you really can't afford to opt out unless you're either incredibly wealthy, don't need health insurance or for some other reason. And so I think what's what's partially interesting here is that there are definitely communities that are actively resisting this kind of push to continually upgrade within the medical device area. There are groups of individuals called loopers who've been creating their own like DIY versions of these smart insulin pumps. And they actually did so even before the commercial introduction of these systems by most of the bigger players. So they they were able to essentially hack a an earlier model of an insulin pump and that they they can exploit that particular model to create kind of an open source system that does this the same kind of thing a dynamic insulin delivery device um, and so that would be a form of resistance i've also been very inspired by the example from the residents in brooklyn housing community where there's been surveillance 
cameras and uh, other technologies being introduced and they were really active in resisting that system. And so I think that there are some really interesting examples. The Amazon warehouse strikes obviously have been interesting. And I think that definitely attitudes have changed towards the tech industry in general in the last number of years. So while 20 years ago, even I found myself quite wrapped up in the excitement about open source software or building these networks and didn't really have have the same understanding about infrastructures or about, say, the ways in which we're constantly having to upgrade to new systems and pay pay more for the next better future. And so, yeah, I think there are examples all over. But I think in addition to these more obvious forms of resistance, I think there's also sort of the, the everyday resistance. Humans are just generally very disobedient. So we don't do the things that companies want us to do no matter what. So they're very minor. It's like extending your sensor for an extra week, even though it's only supposed to last a week. And that could be a substantial cost saving. So that could be economically necessary for you. There's a lot of, I think, everyday forms of resistance that people do that just mean like not using the system as it was intended. Yeah, I really like this notion of disobedience, especially as it relates to like agency. I am curious also because in your work, you talk about socio-technical imaginaries. Could you just talk a little bit about that as well? Like imagining future infrastructures and ones that better center equity and justice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think that the the conversation around socio-technical imaginaries, which is familiar in the science and technology studies field, it's a nice uh, bridge or transition between the social sciences and the critiques and the sort of design field where we actually actively think about could we create participatory processes that create certain kinds of systems? Could we design interventions in a certain way? Could we imagine them? And then, you know, whether that through fiction or through participatory workshops or through other forms of inventive and creative works, using those creative works as ways to interrogate systems. So in some sense, a lot of the same questions that we've been discussing, but taking them in a different direction. And that, that's kind of where I am, you know, with one of my current book projects is just trying to figure out how to, how to kind of pivot into working in a more speculative way with that same set of ideas. So I like to think about using STS theory as a kind of design material for a speculative imaginary. And I think what's interesting there is that depending on where you locate any particular question or problem. So, you know, we've just spent the last hour talking about all of the different multi-scalar ways in which these various systems are embedded, whether that's individual bodies or government structures. And depending on where we, we focus our, our conversation, we might imagine different responses, different interrogations, different imaginaries that are responding to questions or raising new kinds of questions as well. And so that's what I like to think about is, can we develop a form of, I would say, something like a speculative praxis, which really brings the critical and the imaginary really more closely together and, and for the purpose of reorienting towards alternative relations, alternative values, maybe some of the things that we talked about today, such as generosity in our relationships with technology or generosity with respect to the relationship between citizens and their state. Yeah, thank you. I think that is a good 
Just a reminder also that we do have the power to imagine alternatives. It's not all predetermined. So Ranji, again, just to reiterate the question, what trade-offs do you see moving forward when we are thinking about how we interact with data infrastructures and especially in the plight to like make that a more healthier relationship? And then also just acts of resistance that you find inspiring. There are quite a few trade-offs, right? In in the sense that... uh... As soon as we are living in a digital environment, we are simultaneously thinking about, okay, what are the parts of our lives and what are the parts of our identity we would like to share with any institution? And that is always a trade-off in terms of, you know, do I want to access the service in lieu of giving you some access to my information one way or the other? But I think that beyond this fundamental contract that is basically being established in order to access any service, I will give you a very interesting example, which I'm currently thinking through and working out in my head as well. One of the things that we would expect any government to do when it's organizing a welfare scheme is to be very clear on who are the people who are receiving these benefits. And the government of India does this too. Any government does this in the sense that it releases a a list of people who are getting these benefits one way or the other. And it was a standard practice that Indian government had been doing for a while. But after the release of the biometric number, what these websites were also doing was to release the biometric number itself of these beneficiaries on the public portal as a way of establishing transparency and good governance in organizational welfare schemes, which simultaneously raised the challenge of potential invasion of privacy, financial fraud, identity theft that could potentially happen in the future because biometric numbers of these people are basically being displayed publicly on these government websites. Now, here is an interesting trade-off between thinking about how do we organize these practices? What do we anonymize? What do we de-anonymize? How do we actually start thinking about which parts of these data records can potentially be used for information processing as opposed to which parts need to be actually private and personal and should not be shared. This created a quite fascinating controversy over whether the biometric number, just like social security numbers in the US, is a private number or a public number. (laughs) And in the story of Padhar itself, turns from designers of the project saying that it is a public number, you can share it with anyone because it always would require a two-factor authentication. So you need the number along with something else to be able to authenticate identity so you can share the number with anyone who wants to now where the number is considered private and you're not supposed to share it, right? And this happened over a span of the last five years. So in a way, these controversies and these working outs of what these trade-offs look like is happening constantly. It's not something that we can basically decide at one point of time and then that is the decision that lasts with us. As Laura mentioned, there are constantly updates to hardware as well as software, there are constantly updates to these trade-offs that we are making in order to actually be using these systems in the first place. There are a bunch of organizations that map the implementation of public distribution system in India, which is kind of designed around distribution of subsidized food grains to below party line families in the country. And when they started looking at the impact of the number on access to these food grains, they started with mapping consumption patterns of people. I was a part of one of these surveys where they were trying to map what did people eat six months earlier when there was no biometric number involved and what do they eat now, now that the biometric number is basically a part of the process. What they increasingly realized that it's very difficult to quantify the change in consumption patterns. But over time, one of the things that they started uh, mapping was uh, the hunger deaths that were happening in the country because people didn't have access to 
their food grains because of the lack of the biometric number. And then they started recording deaths as a quantifiable metric to then talk about the kinds of precarity that this number may raise when it is unevenly implemented in the country in distribution of welfare. And that to a certain extent is also how we learn what are the metrics which we use in order to actually talk about these systems and their impact. And it's simultaneously a way of constantly being aware of what the systems are doing in the real world and keeping a track of them one way or the other. I find that to be an important part of the ongoing resistance to such systems where we have to be constantly aware of uh, not only how to create proxies for the ways in which these systems are having an impact in the real world, but also be willing to change these proxies when we recognize that, you know, whatever we are doing to measure these impacts is not working. I think that is an important part of how we understand and think through ways by which uh, we are able to account for the kind of consequences that these systems have. And finally, on the notion of generosity, one of the things that the Right to Food campaign uh, campaigners used to tell me was that, you know, if we are really being generous, we should stop thinking about targeting and just make access to food universal. And that to a certain extent is a good and interesting and generous way of reorganizing what it means to actually access welfare. Uh, because, you know, it's really difficult to figure out who deserves it and who doesn't. But if we make it universal, we can create a system by which people can say that we don't need it and can basically opt out of the system in a way. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really nice way to end this conversation. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Laura Ferlano and Ranjit Singh for sharing their thoughts about data and infrastructure. You can find links to their work in the show notes to this episode. Please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter at Data Society or at Public Books. If you have thoughts about this podcast, feel free to share them on Twitter and tag us. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. Next time, in the final episode of Becoming Data, I talk to Sarita Amrute, an anthropologist and director of research at Data and Society who studies race, labor, and class in global tech economies, and Emiliano Treri, a researcher who works on digital activism and algorithmic resistance. We discuss how data is not a new way of organizing human life. Rather, people have deployed data since the Atlantic slave trade and colonial conquest in order to exert power over others. So I hope you'll join us for our final episode about data and racial capitalism. This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced by Annie Galvin and edited by Annie Galvin and Shelby Lohr, with editorial input from Kelly Dean McKinney and Mona Sloan. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton, and our logo was designed by Yichi Liu. Special thanks to Data and Society Director of Research, Sarita Amrute, and Director of Creative Strategy, Sam Hines, and to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.